0: Frank Ling
1: and I'm Charles Lee,
0: and you're listening to the Grok
1: Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. John Halpern will join us to discuss opium. So stay
0: tuned for all of this,
1: plus the Grokatron 5000,
0: and our world famous question of the week
1: coming right up here on the Grox Science Show. Well, the opioid epidemic has reached fervent heights these days, but what is the history of opium and how has it shaped and influenced our world? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. John Halpern. Along with Mr. David Blistine, he's written the new book, Opium. How an Ancient Flower Shaped and Poisoned Our World. Dr. Halpern is a psychiatrist in private practice. He's previously served as medical director of the Boston Center for Addiction Treatment, Been over 20 years on the faculty at Harvard, during which he was conducting his own research at the McLean Hospital, supported by grants from the National Institutes of Drug Abuse. Again, the new book is called Opium, How an Ancient Flower Shaped and Poisoned Our World. And Dr. Halpern, we're very pleased to have you today on the Grox Science Show.
0: Yes, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction.
1: I'm, I'm curious why you both decided to write this book together.
0: So started to collaborate, actually, because we both share an interest in the history of drug use and abuse and have proposed writing also a book um, for teens about what drugs do, um, kind of with the inspiration of From Chocolate to Morphine, a, a great book in the, first in the 1970s by um, um, Dr. Andy Weil. And, um, but then seeing how the opioid epidemic was, capturing much more attention that um, what we really should drill down is into the history of, of opium. And let's start there. And then, as I note in the preface to the book, one of my closest and dearest friends completed suicide, having kept hidden from me that he had actually an addiction to opioids. And that really struck a very powerful chord for me because uh, you know I introduced him to his wife of 18 years his two children are roughly the same age as my son and he had worked on research projects of mine before he went to medical school and I would have done anything for him but he couldn't let me know I was thinking gosh, this is such a painful loss, obviously, for me and for his family, for his friends, also for the patients that he had. He worked for a Native American tribe where it's very hard to get physicians to work on reservation. And then it hit me that, well, what about the patients that he's supposed to save, but he'll never meet them? Are they going to have good medical care or not? And if they don't, maybe they die. And we'll never know that. So for people out there who think like, oh, the story of the opioid epidemic, it's not really relevant for them because their friends and family, colleagues, they don't know anybody who has been harmed by the opioid epidemic. Well, really? Actually, everybody's been damaged. You just don't know it yet.
1: It really is something that touches all areas of life, as you mentioned, in ways you might not even know impact you.
0: Exactly right. This opioid epidemic affects all of us. When it comes to public policy, you know, we've spent a trillion dollars on the drug war since it was first announced by President Richard Nixon. And yet, how about this? 2006, government estimates about half a million Americans are addicted to heroin. Um, Today, we're more like at a million Americans. Right now, today, today... 130 Americans are estimated to die of an opioid overdose each and every day. We have more Americans dying every year from this epidemic than from soldiers that died in the entire Vietnam War every year. And yet we're spending $8 billion was the, the last bill that was targeted, uh, that got signed by uh, the current president, um, targeting opio- the opioid epidemic, $8 billion? well, we're spending hundreds of billions dealing with weather-related uh, emergencies and catastrophes, but we're having fifty to 70,000 Americans die every year from this epidemic, and we're spending $8 billion. So the optics of it are such that we keep revisiting failed strategies of the past so those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. It sure seems to be part of the opioid epidemic. And that's the other reason why we felt very strongly that we should lead with the story of opium.
1: I mean, this is certainly a story that's been around since antiquity, as, as you point out in the book. It's, I mean, something which could have great use if used properly, but it's been uh, corrupted in many ways throughout history.
0: Correct. Anything can be used and abused, right? Um, and no, surely nobody is growing up saying, you know, one day I want to become an alcoholic or a heroin addict. It's part of the human condition to go with what you think is working well for you and kind of discount where the harms might be. And when the problem is due to its chronic use over time, by the time you realize the substance is harmful, you're addicted and dependent on it in order to feel normal. And so many a person can wind up being on it for the rest of their life and struggle with it yet these remain essentially very important medications and without them the human condition will suffer until we have true replacements and when you think about this you mention the history how about this the opium poppy the the poppy that specifically has the high concentrations of the opioids that are used to convert to heroin, but also codeine and other important medications, hydrocodone, the papaver uh, somniferum. Well, that specific plant cannot be found in the wild. It is only cultivated. It, it doesn't exist in the wild anymore. It has truly been with us since before recorded history. The earliest Symbols of fertility were the pomegranate and the opium poppy because they contain many seeds. But where we look at the opium poppy, if you want to think that like interdiction will ever get ahead of this problem, one opium poppy from one flower, just one poppy contains 20,000 seeds. And so it's very easy to just start right up again. And the opium flower that this poppy can be grown in arid conditions in poor quality dirt where... Other foodstuffs just can't even be grown, so it is something that is infested into our life. It has had its ups and its downs through the history. We have Marcus Aurelius, the philosopher-emperor, who was addicted to opium, It was being provided to him by his physician, the most famous physician of the ancient world, Galen. We have the development of laudanum, which was then used by the wealthy, even Thomas Jefferson Grew the opium puppy, but he, when he was on his deathbed, he was dying of dysentery, and he was being given laudanum for its binding purposes because the person who is uh, given opiates will experience constipation. So he, here we had a president who died under the influence of an opiate. He's probably not the only one. And the idea that somebody who's in extreme pain, if we give these opiates, that they won't have an intoxicating effect as well, that's false. They do. It's just when you have extreme pain and you give an opiate, you tend to fall asleep because you have relief. I mean, How about this? The hypodermic syringe was invented so that we could present opium targeted closer to where the pain was. There was even a thought back then that maybe that would be less addictive because you now would be injecting the, the substance and a smaller amount needed locally to where it is and there wasn't this understanding, of course, that in fact you just made it even more addictive. But today, I mean, the reason this is so important today is for the first time in history, the Opium problem, the opiate crisis has been separated from the growth cycle of this plant in the United States it is fentanyl and turfentanyl I mean carfentanyl and other analogues that are sweeping through the illicit market in New England, in my region of the country all street heroin is to be presumed fentanyl until shown to be otherwise and that is terrifying where um, Heroin is fifty hundred times, you know, more potent, uh, potent than than morphine, and fentanyl is about 100 hundredfold more potent than that. And carfentanyl uh, I'm sorry, carfentanyl is ten thousand times more potent than morphine. The risk of overdose is extreme. And though there's much made of how fentanyl is being imported illegally from china and elsewhere the fact is there's a, a, a number of illegal dealers that are shipping forensic watch chemicals and other chemicals that are needed to and the ingredients to make fentanyl and they ship it into the city that they want to sell in and then they'll send a chemist to the city to then convert it to fentanyl like roughly twenty thousand dollars worth of chemicals could be worth of $2 million of fentanyl on the street, and some of them are just synthesizing just enough to sell what they want. So this, this problem has mutated into something much worse and with deadly, deadly effects. The carfentanil wave with that extra, extra super potent version, it's estimated that 1,000 people died on top of all the other opioid epidemics just in the state of Ohio in one year.
1: Is the groundwork for all of that laid from the very foundations of opioids always sort of being in the background in the history? It's always around and it's always a problem and it's never really
0: dealt with. But we can deal with it. Once we understand that the measures that make the community feel good is all well and fine, but the problem isn't going away. The idea is to try to learn from that and grow from that. That's the whole point of, of the scientific method, after all. Yeah, we keep going back to what just plays well publicly. Former Senator Rudman, Warren Rudman from, I believe it was New Hampshire, once said to me, oh, gosh, John, you got to stop this. You, you're, you're trying to be smart on crime. Don't you understand politicians? They need to get reelected. So they make it, you got to be tough on crime or, so, or you're soft on crime. Don't tell me you want to be smart on crime, but that's exactly what we, we have to be here. And if you look at this, we know that interdiction isn't, hasn't worked and it's not going to. Even drug education, it's very important, of course, but that's insufficient. We can look at treatment. There's more to do there. Yet, what do we have? We have doctors and lawyers pretending to be doctors doing drug court when at the same time, for every 30 people that actually want to go into a residential program, there's only one bed available. How about we upgrade our hustle and provide more beds for people that even want treatment? And when you look at treatment, buprenorphine has been a very important medication-assisted treatment, and yet oral doses of it, I mean, it's very effective at getting a person off of the illicit stuff onto this it has no cognitive uh, decline that happens with it so they can function they can work in the community again regain their lives but when you give them a daily dose some people start and stop it and exchange it with heroin or or sell it themselves and it gets into the illicit market but only in this last year did the fda finally approve and bring allow to be brought to market a once a month injection of this stuff so you don't ever make it available to the patient to potentially lose, quote unquote, or or get rid of. That's a huge difference. And we're going to see, I think, a much better impact because of that. And obviously, why are, are doctors not even allowed to prescribe methadone? It can only be prescribed in a methadone clinic. Well, that's not based on any scientific data showing that it needs to be dispensed in that way. That was based more in politics of fear. Well, when our relatives, our our neighbors, our people, our community are dying like this, we've got to step up and accept that some things may be, make some in our community somewhat morally queasy, but we're trying to save people's lives here, and that really should come first. The real ultimate goal, obviously, is to try to get opiates out of the pharmacopoeia. And I think there's hope there as well. There has been a lot of research, for example, into these amphibian and arachnid and mollusk-based peptide molecules that are very bioactive, some of which have shown to have picomolar affinity for the mu opioid receptor. And that suggests that there could be compounds with a new mechanism of action that would not induce tolerance or dependence or risk of overdose. And that would, of course, fundamentally change what happens when people are in pain and they wind up getting prescribed a pain medication. The crisis from OxyContin was with the ambition to adequately treat pain and then the problem has morphed into a greater expansion of addiction so now the pendulum swings again that we're going to be tougher on these legal medications being prescribed and more patients are going to suffer because these drugs have this inherent problem with them and the pendulum will swing back but if we keep talking about it like this not just around election cycles this time it's stuck and the numbers of people dying are such that we have to look at this. I have a lot of hope for the future, that this is the generation, our generation, the next generation that's finally going to help us grow to a much healthier uh, relationship with these substances and with ourselves, therefore.
1: Is the solution a combination of both greater investment in these alternative methods and also greater education?
0: Well, I 100% agree with that statement, but the real thing that we have to accept is to inspire these people with these problems to remember to treasure their life, no matter what others may make them feel like, then that's the beginning of recovery, right? We can't just tell people, Oh, you know, twelve-step self-help groups help absolutely. Narcotics Anonymous, alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous—they help a lot of people. I, I'm, I'm very supportive of the of the work that happens um, in these meetings. But it al- our our laws currently are set up in a way it it almost implies like a person is then going to be stuck in a self-help group for the rest of their life. And uh, and that's okay if they're paying it forward, also helping people newer to recovery, and, and it helps them maintain their abstinence. But you know, we're in, the real issue, though, is this separation of the abuser from the rest of us. Somehow they're like less than human. Oh, the junkie. Oh, this is the person from the street. Well, you know, something, they, they weren't like that before. Um, and at one point there was somebody's kid, that's somebody's parent, maybe, or brother. And and, and yet we criminalize them and they are ostracized. If we stop doing that, stop doing that, I think we'll we will really be fundamentally getting our hands around this problem and getting ahead of it.
1: It is a tougher problem, I think, to crack because it requires more of social change and awareness of the problem.
0: <laughs> You're so right. You're so right because this is a, a complex problem. And what makes it complex is it's nested with other complex problems. If you really want to target the opioid epidemic and get it to a fundamentally different place, then maybe that will also lead us to having to deal with inequitable education and reform of certain legal strictures. For example, not every state has good Samaritan laws for people that might be using hypodermic needles, injecting heroin as a group, and then one person overdoses. Some states, you call uh, 911, and the person who calls in could be charged with manslaughter if the guy overdosed because, you know, look, you were doing this with them and that's an accessory to that person's death. So that's not very smart though, because then now those, those people aren't going to call at all. And then for sure the person is at greater risk of death. So there's some fundamental small steps that could be done that could very quickly, I think, make a big impact. Like I mentioned, preventing doctors from prescribing methadone in an office based setting. But when you're talking about Education in in poor communities? Would that have an impact on the opioid epidemic? For sure. But we've known very well all along that the one thing to prevent recidivism or to even prevent a person from going to jail is education. But we don't invest all that money into the inner city, into places that don't have uh, the financial resources to educate the children as well as elsewhere. But we'd sure find the money, $50,000 to $70,000 plus, to incarcerate that same individual when they wind up committing a crime. So I think when you read the history of the opioid epidemic, you're going to read many things that uh, turn out to be quite relevant to today. Things like the original go pill for for militaries of ancient times was opium. And we still wind up using go pills. Like in ancient times, the, I mentioned that opium was an important symbol of fertility. And yet we f- still find all these drug references in popular culture today. Some things have consistently been with us from the dawn of time. What's different today is this synthetic route to more powerful opiates and that they're killing much quicker and making a much more vexing problem. And if we keep ignoring it, At this point then we are going to suffer much worse it's going to cost our country and the world a lot more than just a lot more money and that is the loss of life life is precious and we can help engender that in each other better we will help create the conditions where Um, the turning to opiates isn't going to be necessary. So technology may help drive us out of the opioid epidemic. I really believe that this new medication for uh, a monthly injection of buprenorphine is of critical importance and is just starting to be prescribed. And we have to keep up the bully pulpit, all of us, talking about this and making sure that we're really looking at the people with these problems that there are problems, too, and that we can support them through it. These people get better. People with um, chronic addiction can get better, too. They do get better with treatment, but it may take time to help them feel safe because we've had a, a, a whole history of making them feel like they're less than human. So, it's been used obviously to corrupt politics and trade and has driven technology, like I mentioned with the syringe. But if we just let this ride the way it is, now it's going to be much worse. And I, I, I'm stunned that actually the press has kept up over these last, I think, four or five years with a variety of stories, keeping it better known in the public discourse. And it's making it easier to talk to those that are very hostile to considering accepting the drug user as a whole person. Should we still be making heroin illegal at this point? How about this? Although the United States certainly doesn't seem ready to consider it. In Germany, they let the worst of the worst heroin addicts use heroin. It, it, not just in a, a safe injection site, that's a, a controversial trying to get that set up in the United States of just a safe place to to uh, inject your drugs and have uh, supportive staff encouraging a you know, variety of services and detox if they're ready for it. But in Germany, there's clinics where they actually provide heroin to the patient like this themselves. And uh, as you will, of course, know. The police officers and police departments in the communities where these clinics were set to open were adamantly opposed to letting this happen. Now when there's talk about opening up a new clinic in Germany, often communities and and, and police are actually fighting over getting that clinic opened there. Why? Because petty crime goes down by 80% in a couple kilometer radius around that clinic. Are we willing to do what it takes to actually help save these people and help save our country? Or are we going to lead with issues of secondary importance in a way? Uh, And and this is not just, you know, around, around drug abuse, right? How about the vaccination against cervical cancer, which is for HPV? In the United States, we're not doing very well of getting full acceptance because somehow there's this belief among some that, gee, maybe this will condone promiscuity. I mean, I've never met a single patient ever tell me that because they got this vaccination against HPV that now they're going to be sexually promiscuous. Meanwhile, in smaller countries, and one big one with that has done a fantastic job of educating the public and getting everybody vaccinated – it looks like Botswana and and Australia are on their way to completely eradicating cervical cancer because that particular cancer is induced by this virus. So I I, want to see that. The doctor in me wants to see, let's reduce morbidity and mortality so that we can have much more freedom to have this greater debate of moral issues. But I don't want to see it done where we're preventing patients from getting the opiates that they need to relieve pain. And I don't want to see it done in a way that also keeps addicts from presenting themselves so that they can actually turn the corner and get better. It's complicated.
1: It is. A very complicated issue, a very fascinating book you've written, and one that we all need to pay more attention to. We were talking with Dr. John Halpern, together with David Blisting. He's written the new book, Opium, How an Ancient Flower Shaped and Poisoned Our World. And Dr. Halpern, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show.
0: Thank you so much for having me.